Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined here by Ash Milton, our Managing Editor. So today we're going to talk about economics. Recently, we had this great article, very bold, from Nico Valario, titled Small Businesses Class War Could Finish Off American Dynamism. His thesis is basically that to reboot the American economy, which is obviously necessary, we need to create some kind of new coalition between the big tech monopolies and and generally big capital and the working class, perhaps against small business. Very interesting. But we had some internal discussions after that. Some people agreed with the article. Some people disagreed. Uh, It's important in a project like Palladium to have lots of lively debate internally about how we actually think about things. So that's what we were doing. And we came basically to the question of, wait a minute, where are we even trying to go in terms of how to structure the economy? What are the investments that we need to make? How should the economy actually work? What are the key problems in economics? How do you actually invest in growth? Why do we want to invest in growth? All those sorts of questions. So that's, we wanted to do a podcast on that, talk about what is the proper economic order for America going forward? You kind of have to establish that before you can start talking about, well, who are the natural political players that are going to support that? What coalition would you want to bring together? First, we have to have some idea, what are we doing and why? And now, obviously, this is kind of a simultaneous solution sort of problem. Uh, You can't really know what you're going to build without knowing that you have the means to build it. And you can't really know what means you're going to use without knowing what you're trying to build. So it's kind of this back and forth dialogue between vision and pragmatism. So today we want to deal with a little bit more with the vision side. So I've brought on Ash. We're going to talk about this. So Ash, do you have any thoughts to start us off on the article and and on our discussion? Yeah, I think uh, one of the conclusions that we came to in our initial discussion was that at Palladium, we've laid out a bunch of material goals that we'd like to see. Going to Mars, most people are able to have a family. The bison sphere. The bison sphere. And there's a few ways you can look at reverse engineering how you get there. Either you can just take those goals and then figure out almost from scratch what kind of economic order you want, what class coalitions in society you need, what kinds of businesses what kind of industrial policy, and so on. But that's almost leaving everything up to a single variable. And I think one of the things that became evident was that there are actually a multi, multiple variables of interest here. You know, The class structure of a society tends to create a certain kind of society. It tends to create certain kinds of people in their temperament, in their mm-hmm. values. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, right, let's say that we decide the best way to go to society is just transition a focus to big business. We don't care about small proprietors. Well, you know, it could might be the case that that is politically unstable or it's going to be startups, it's going to be smaller businesses. But maybe it's the case that that inculcates a kind of middle class driver shopkeeper mindset. So uh, I don't know if either of those is necessarily true, but it's clearly the case that you can't just take the material goal. You have to think about what kind of society you're creating to achieve those goals. Right. And you're Social not going to be order. able to... Exactly. And you're not going to be able to solve any one of those variables first. The sort of society you're developing is going to kind of be achieving all of these things at once, right? In the Industrial Revolution, the, the class structure and the technology, it all kind of emerged at the same time and reinforced each other and played off each other in different ways. Yeah, so this is a really important point. Basically, the economic order, the political order, the social order of a society are inseparable. They are not different things. You can't have one kind of social order and then another kind of economic order where those things are not part of the same holistic system. Economics used to be called political economy, because obviously there's this huge political and social aspect to how you organize the the material means of production and and what you organize it for. We've kind of gone away from that, at least in theory, towards this idea of not talking about the social order, not talking about the political order, but rather just talking about economics as its own thing. The interesting thing, though, is modern economics actually encodes a political and social order in it. Yes. it. It encodes a certain form of individualism. It encodes a certain form of capitalism. 
in its assumptions about how we're doing economic order. Right. So that's how wealth is controlled, right. how you can fund different kinds of invention or innovation yeah. and all this kind of thing. You, right. you end up having a society sort of implicit in the way that you control wealth. Right. And, and the way even you define like interest, right? Yeah. You define in- individual interest as something that is separate from everyone else's interest. Or what wealth is, actually, right? right? right. And, if yeah, if agriculture wealth is. is wealth, then you're probably looking at a more feudal looking society with a mercantile class or something. But if commerce is wealth, then you're going to get Venetian merchant republic. Right. Or or if, if consumer commerce is wealth, you're going to get, you know, lots of plastic junk. Right? Yes. So we have this this important notion that to talk about an economic order, you inherently kind of encode a bunch of discussion about social order and political order. And this isn't this isn't a low dimensional problem either. It's not like, oh, the answer is capitalism or the answer is communism or whatever. It's not like there's five possible answers and you pick one. It's that there's actually this enormous complex system that you have to structure in detail. And, you know, you don't have to structure every detail. A lot of it is kind of open for for empirical discovery and so on. But the set of assumptions made in going with a certain economics, it is itself a, a large thing subject to design. And so you have to actually engage with that and get it right. You can't just say, oh, we've got the right answer and, you know, we're going to do economics on top of that. So let's go back to basics here. What kind of economic order do we want? What kind of social order does that imply? We'll try to keep it realistic, but inherently we're looking sort of more at the visionary aspect here. So what do we want? This is an important question to start with. Maybe I'll give some thoughts on that. In my upcoming essay that we're publishing in the first print edition of Palladium, y'all should subscribe and get it. I make the case that basically... There's three big things we need to be working on. One is some kind of political transformation. Specifically, we need to get mastery at political engineering. The second thing is we need to do something like a full industrial development, by which I mean actually fully go out to the limits of or or towards the limits or move in that direction of what does industry allow in terms of can we fully industrialize our infrastructure? Can we have a fully developed industrial economy? Basically, my premise is that our economy is not fully developed. You know, we make these claims that it's fully developed, but it really doesn't seem like that. Most people are not necessarily working directly on actual production, actual research and development, actually pushing out what can we do with the technologies that we have. We're not all actually building this material wealth, and we could be doing that. So that's like this big central, central kind of economic aspect. And then the third thing is in terms of what we actually want to do with the economic order and the social order, we also have to achieve some kind of basically terraforming of the earth. We are now at the scale industrially, civilizationally, where we're affecting the entire climate, the entire environment of the earth. We have to be thinking about how do we produce an economic order that eats its own waste, so to speak, and manages all of its own feedback loops. So these are three big things, but that central one is this idea of full industrial development. I take it for granted that that's the fountain of wealth from which we can go and do anything else we might want to do. That's sort of like maybe a first crack at the issue, but maybe we wanted to find that more. So what do we think that actually looks like? What does that mean? So I want to draw out from that what the common kinds of material advancement being discussed here are. I think this is important because it will start to make us focus on what kinds of accumulation occur in the society. Carol Quigley is a popular author uh, in our community, and he writes about the fact that we've had various kinds of capitalism up to the modern era. We've had a kind of mercantile form of capitalism, a commercial form of capitalism. We've had a industrial form of capitalism. We now have a more financial form of capitalism. We may have in future different methods of capital accumulation. But if we're looking at the things you just talked about, Wolf, I think what we're finding is we're privileging forms of material wealth that create drastic advances in the ability of humans to do things on a coordinated level, on a large scale, that when you accomplish them, also drastically rewrite the future spectrum of human possibilities, right? So if, if you solve the deep ecological reformation of our ecology, 
you are now able to no longer worry about certain kinds of waste harmfully impacting us. If you achieve full industrialization in things like materials which would allow us to set up sustainable Martian colonies, you are now creating redundancy to Mm -hmm. Earth-level disasters which would wipe out our species currently. So we're, we're privileging this kind of wealth. We're also privileging the use value, so to speak, of material goods, including of consumer goods. I think that implicit in the way we talk about building for good and all these topics is the idea that a form of wealth or any a good even that only has value because it is able to be exchanged easily on the market and is able to boost your stonks or something is not actually that useful for society if it doesn't also have some kind of concrete use value. And by you know, when I talk about value in this sense, I'm talking about use in achieving the kind of moral, physical, social life that we are talking about here. There is a judgment going on here. Yeah, so these, these are really important points. Let me just echo those um, because, and, and then we can build on them. So I think, I think this is really important. So first of all, what we have is this idea of collective capability being the sort of economic North Star rather than how our society currently thinks about this is much more about the satisfaction of individual wants. Mm-hmm. You know, can you get the plastic stuff that you want from Amazon? Versus can we as a society do what we want in terms of opening up new possibilities, opening up new frontiers, confronting collective problems? So so that's that's true. That's something I hadn't necessarily recognized before, that we actually do have this paradigm of, of what kind of value we're thinking of in, in when we're thinking about economics. This reflects basically what kind of problems are important in your society. Is the problem in our society that when I go on Amazon, there isn't enough stuff? Or is the problem that our infrastructure is decaying and we're faced with collective threats that, that we don't have the wealth and there's to not, deal with? Perhaps there's not the right kind of stuff. Right. Maybe the stuff that we're getting on Amazon is stuff that is basically invented to release the right biochemicals because we're basically operating under algorithms that they're there, there to generate hits and buys and clicks and so yeah. on. It's things that are consumer optimized are not necessarily well-being optimized. My favorite example of this is I went to a restaurant once and they had dried fish and the dried fish was wonderful. It was great. It was chewy. It was traditional. It, it, it you really worked out your jaw. You felt like you were getting really new, uh, a lot of nutrition. Okay. Try actually getting dried fish in the modern economy. It is really hard to find dried fish. It's like, okay, there's something weird going on here. Anyways, that's a total aside. But the first idea is, are we privileging the individual wants or are we privileging some idea of capability, of of perhaps collective capability? So that's an interesting point that you raised there. The next thing is this idea of like use value versus exchange value, which inherently is actually related to that. If you're thinking about individual wealth in terms of, you know, we're taking the market for granted, we're taking society for granted, we're just looking at how do we satisfy the individual wants within that structure. You're talking about accumulation of individual wealth, you're talking about exchange value. But if you're talking about collective capability, if you're talking about some more notion of holistic development, then you're talking about use value. The way you define wealth is defined with respect to strategic goals of society. It's like we want more of this because we need it to solve these problems. It's it's use value. And like exchange is something you do within the social order to help support that, but exchange is not is not outside of, yeah. of your value framework. There could be various kinds of disparities between exchange and use. I would say one of the conclusions you can draw from that is it lets us judge certain technologies. So let's take Amazon's general infrastructure of facilitating marketplaces and exchange. I think what Amazon and similar apps like Uber and Lyft, uh, Airbnb do, they're basically creating highly legible exchange infrastructures and finding ways to profit off of them. And I think putting aside any questions about uh, you know antitrust or politics, just in terms of that technology, there is kind of an open question here as to what is being exchanged. And so you can imagine a society where the kinds of goods being exchanged are mostly good or neutral ones, and the technology is then hugely beneficial. You can imagine a society where it's basically just facilitating a very empty consumer culture, in which case 
the technology would be cooperating in a way with negative forms of material mm-hmm. growth. So when we're talking about the harmfulness or how beneficial any technology is, I think thinking about it in terms of what uses it has is the right way to go about it. Once we think about that, then we can also talk about the economic structures that are creating it, that are letting people accumulate wealth from it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Quigley's point about these different kinds of accumulation that get taken under different forms of capitalism that have occurred historically. I mean, you could even go beyond capitalism, just what kinds of accumulation does the society engage in? And again, in our society, we have more like this individual accumulation, right? Like this idea of the rich get richer. That's kind of the point. You know, people say that they they mean it negatively, but that's also kind of the vision of our society right now is like we're individually getting richer. Now, that's like an accumulative mode of economics. You could also imagine a developmental mode of economics. Again, this is taking the more holistic use value kind of view of things. And you're saying, okay, we actually want to develop as a society. And and I think the important thing that that takes this out of total abstraction is that there are different societies that take different balances on this issue. Right now, modern Western society, mostly accumulative. Right now in China, very much developmental. You know, 20 years ago in China, very much developmental. In the 80s, 70 years ago in America, very developmental. Right. I seven, think yeah, one of the best America, points exactly. Nico makes in this piece is that if we look at the economic settlement between more or less FDR and LBJ, we have, I think he calls it a social democratic compromise. You know, people might want to go back and forth on how exactly they describe it. But the nature of this compromise was labor and big business cooperating on the interest of capital development. And so you had an economy focused on material advancement, industrialization, export of those benefits, those economic benefits to other countries, such as the rebuilding of Europe, such as the global south. Through the 80s, we have a transition toward profitability. And these are two different methods of managing wealth in the society, and they're going to privilege different forms of accumulation. In the mid-century example, businesses and labor forego certain kinds of profits because the long-term interests of the settlement are something broader than either of them. In the 80s and 90s, we start to have the gutting of the material structure to privilege profitability, especially financial profitability and the growth and interests of financial institutions. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, an interesting kind of explanation of that that I think is implicit in Nico's article. He's saying basically there's this profitability crisis in the 70s and the political social order, the economic order got renegotiated at that point to preserve profitability as opposed to other things. Like rather than preserving development or preserving something else, there was this profitability crisis and it got renegotiated to preserve profitability. And of course, that meant that, you know, unfortunately, that comes at the expense of some other things like like more of the developmental stuff. You look at a lot of these graphs, things like hydroelectricity, things like energy usage, things like median wage, mm-hmm. a lot Possibly. of things, a lot of these markers of development. You look at them. Big inflection point, 1973. I think someone has a website up now. What happened in 1973? It might be 1972 or 74 or something in their in their telling. But basically, like you can see this inflection point in the graphs, and that's the shift away from really a developmental mode. So I think so. Coming back to our visionary question, what kind of economy do we want? Can we take it as basically we want? A developmental economy, you know, make America a developing country again. Um, uh, is is that what we mean? Are there different types of development we could want? Why is development the right thing? Is it is that the right thing? Here's a question: Was the mid-century settlement basically just correct? Is the job here to rebuild a settlement where the different economic interests in society are more or less reconciled around the development of capital? So yeah, so that's an interesting claim. Or an interesting idea. I think 
Something that Nico doesn't quite engage with and that we haven't engaged with so far is the fact that that settlement was unsustainable. The normal logic of that settlement led to the profitability crisis and then or whatever it was, whatever it was in the profitability crisis is Nico's account. There are other accounts, but whatever it was, the normal development of that mode of economy led to something that happened in 1973 where it had to get renegotiated and it wasn't working anymore. The settlement had broken down. And now at that point, you're at this trade-off where you can either go this way or you can go that way. What are you, what are you preserving, right? And, and what are you losing? You've actually lost something. You've run out of steam. And I think, you know, the Soviet Union, they obviously didn't have an emphasis on markets. They took a different approach. I'm not sure how similar the problems were, but they also started to get this economic bogging down some point in the mid-century there. And, you know, they didn't actually successfully manage to reform and they just stagnated. And eventually that that was uh, not good for them. America, we took the trade off that we did. It's the nature of that trade off is not entirely clear, but it seems to have involved financialization at the expense and, and the preservation of profits at the expense of development. But it's not actually clear you could have kept development going. Right. It's not clear that 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 was actually a sustainable settlement. So I would say in answer to your question, Ash, that it might have been the right settlement for that time, but there were other dynamic variables that were going to run out of of being in whatever kind of nice condition they were in. And now we're actually just in a different historical condition and we have to think about something else. So a question, when you say it's unsustainable, it sounds like you mean that it was going to drive profits to such a low rate that the capital aspect could no longer afford to participate in this arrangement. Something like that. Something I don't like that. I don't know. Okay. Maybe it's so that, maybe it's something else. There's some in, there's I can think of at least a couple of lessons to be learned from the 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 mid-century or the, the crisis of the 70s. One is that you could make a claim that actually this is in the nature of capital development. There comes a point where the profit motive no longer sustains further development of capital. And so you need to, at that point, abolish it as the form of accumulation and find some new way, new social political arrangement to drive forward further advancement of society. And this is somehow an inherent conflict that you will always come back to. Perhaps we can explore this. The other possibility is that there were not strictly economic, but social and political artificial barriers driving down profitability. You know, oil is obviously not a free market. A lot of these inputs are being controlled by a select group of countries. You you had oil crises around the time of stagflation. Maybe we could say that in in certain countries, labor became powerful enough that it could constrain new forms of investment or it could artificially keep up markets that were no longer sustainable. And actually, profitability could have gone on, but there were these these political constraints on the thing. But, but yeah, I mean, but even even like the assumption that perhaps labor was the problem, what you're talking about, there is a different trade-off, right? That, okay, instead of development losing, labor has to lose. And, and they should have right. taken even but more the, of a haircut. The difference between the two is that in the, in the one case, the first scenario I described would be a situation where actually the nature of capital development is such that when you get advanced enough, you are starting to either incur costs or maybe such long terms to get to profitability that it's there is almost no one in society that is willing to make those investments under a profit motive. The other one implies that actually maybe you could have somehow rescued the same arrangement if you had had a more moderate set of reforms. So here's here's an interesting model. I'm just going to bring this forward and we can explore it. I don't know if this works, but let's synthesize what we were just saying about, you know, you've, you've got this bunch of private capitalists or semi-private, right? Like at that scale, you're not really private, but but anyways, you've, you've got a bunch of people who actually have control of the wealth. And even in a non-capitalist system, you have some bunch of bureaucratic managers who have the wealth or, or who have control of the resources and decide where it goes for investment. So you have these, these, this class of people who control the wealth and they have these little empires built out of that. And they want to make sure they're not just you know pissing their money away. They want to make sure they're getting returns. It's coming back into their budget. This is kind of rescuing the idea of 
profitability from the particulars of the capitalist system. Basically, the point being, you have a bunch of people allocating the wealth, but they're acting as these individual actors, you know, probably on a market. A market seems to be the best way to do it. But what we're saying is that at some point going through the market logic, they actually run out of frontier somehow and, and profitability starts to suffer. And the way that you preserve profitability is to actually start turning around and, and cannibalizing the structure of society. And that maybe that's blocked politically. Maybe you start pushing on the political system to allow certain forms of it. You get maybe the least harmful forms or maybe you get more harmful forms, depending on what happens in the politics there. But basically, you, you run out of rope. You have to either open up new frontiers or turn around and start cannibalizing. So let's imagine a society that had no more frontiers somehow. You've reached the limits of current technology. No one really knows how to create new technology. No one knows how to open new frontiers. You have essentially a static technological order, and then you have these, these capitalists operating within that. I think it seems obvious that within that order, what happens is the wealth investor class becomes essentially a zero-sum operation because there's no new wealth being created. There, you've run out of frontier. If there's no new wealth being created, if there's no actual opportunities for new wealth, then the thing becomes predatory by necessity. And, and so that suggests, okay, the only way you can keep that settlement going and keep capitalism from becoming predatory is to keep opening up frontiers. Now, this is where I want to bring in the next element. This is just kind of laying out an idea that I think summarizes what we've been saying so far. The next idea is we had Ian Fletcher and Mark Fasto's article on the economic foundations of industrial policy, where they actually make a fairly rigorous case that there are certain kinds of developmental coordination problems that the market does not solve and that you need something like collective action to be able to build up new industries, open up frontiers and so on. So what if the answer is just that to keep capitalism actually working and actually being a wealth generation mechanism and actually be a positive something, you need industrial policy to be constantly opening up frontiers. You need the state to kind of act as an economic vanguard, do sponsoring research and opening up frontiers to keep it so that there are valuable things to work on and profitable things to work on that are also aligned with development. So this is maybe a model of how you could kind of keep the thing going. Now, I don't know, maybe that runs into limits. And there's also the question of why that wasn't taken in, in the 70s. Why didn't they just continue with state-sponsored industrial policy style of development? Had something gone wrong with that? But this is a model I want to explore. Can you just kind of keep the thing going by continuing to do state-sponsored development such that you are continuously opening up new frontiers? When we're looking at the way industrial policy is used, I'm not sure if the right way to think about this is a kind of a bunch of potential frontiers of development and industrial policy just kind of unlocking these things. That almost seems to imply a fairly determinist model of where development is headed, which I don't think is correct. Well, it's like you have a bunch of options and, and like you need to invest to actually make those options. Right, right. But so my, my point is more that when we're looking at profitability here, what is going on? It means that when a new anything is being created, there are people who have found ways to deploy ownership. It could be of capital, it could be of data, it could be of resources, but they found a way to deploy those things in some kind of activity and people are willing to pay them for it. They can become profitable doing this. So what's happening when things become unprofitable to innovate? It's either the costs for private actors in society are too high, or the profits are so long-term, so far away, that given the, the constraints we live under, it's not reasonable to expect people to wait for those benefits. Or maybe there's maybe it's not possible to capture the benefits once they're around. Like maybe you're actually creating some new kind of public good, and there's really no way to exclude anyone from using it, and so you can never actually capture the profits. Meaning yeah, there's well, no reason for you to give the investment. Right. It's important to <clears throat> to recognize that a lot of the time, possibly most of the time, technology is a public good. Right. And so 
in both cases, private actors and public industrial policy committees are making judgments about where the most valuable lines of human development are. So I think you're going to get a couple things. There are industries we kind of know, like we could think about and reasonably guess where further development could occur. And maybe there we can make the judgment that actually private profit motive is no longer sufficing to do that kind of development. So, you know, something like SpaceX can't really survive right now without the existence of a number of public bodies that are mm. essentially subsidizing it. The other point that came up in our internal discussion, which is important with SpaceX, is it also can't survive without the financialized mode of capital allocation right. right now, where they're not running on profits, they're not running on revenue, right? Like the big chunk of revenue that they are running on is basically like government contracts. In that case, we have an industry where both governments and private actors know the risks that they're trying to take on. They know the next steps, the arcs of development they want to pursue. The other case is a field where those things are basically unknown. So nuclear fusion maybe would be an example of this. There are a number of fields where we could imagine a very vague kind of good being developed, but we don't really know the details of how it's going to play out. There, maybe you do have some very risk-tolerant private actors jumping in, but a lot of times this is where basic research that is at least somewhat publicly funded plays a role. And the reason is that the people willing to undertake those kinds of things are people who are not necessarily constrained by profit motive, at least in the near term. Now, even states are somewhat constrained by the profit motive, especially if they're smaller states, because they live in a global economy where larger states are creating requirements for things like taking on debt. The biggest states, so China and the US, maybe Russia and a few others, are remarkably unconstrained by near-term profit motives. There are also certain companies that are remarkably unconstrained by near-term profit motives, like Amazon, like some of the state-owned enterprises in China, Facebook perhaps, Google, Google, um, certain oil companies, which are currently doing a lot of green energy investment. You know, they're seeing potential markets to capture there. Um, this is obviously not a kind of altruistic move on their part, but there are both private and public actors that are remarkably unconstrained by markets. Mm -hmm. Some of these actors are able to actively create and facilitate markets. I wrote about this recently in Zoom Journal. I will be writing about this more in detail for Palladium. But the basic observation here is that there are certain entities which are able to either facilitate locations like special economic zones or platforms like the Amazon platform. They are able to create markets where they don't understand what the profitable activity is. But they can, through various mechanisms, stimulating demand, maybe stimulating research, other things, drive people to actually take risks they would not otherwise have taken. And those are the organizations which are able to do some of the most risky, but also some of the most profitable forms of research into unknown areas, things we know very little about, but things which can potentially spur human advancement like a few other discoveries can. So, okay, to, to bring it back to the original question, where's the profit motive the most useful? The profit motive is highly useful in, in these basic forms where we know what's going to happen, where it disciplines the way that companies invest resources. The profit motive is also useful in these sort of planned markets. The profit motive is not as useful in those first mover situations where one of these organizations has to take the leap of creating a market or some kind of community in which that kind of research takes place. And so if our society has run into a place now where the most important forms of advancement for us right now, so some of the frontiers you've laid out here, mm. are that kind of research, that kind of development, then we may have to find ways to circumvent or at least properly order the role of profit motive. Well, there's there's two things that I want to I want to relate here. One is what you're saying about how some big companies can build markets. And the idea being there that markets are actually really good at a certain type of information and coordination problem, which is the type where you basically need to integrate all this different information and all these different efforts relatively independently 
to produce a bunch of stuff and and just chase chase a whole field of opportunities. Right. It's a computational device, basically. Computational I, I essentially device have a Hayekian for, view of right. markets here, uh, although I disagree with his political conclusions from that observation. Right, right. It's 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 like it's this computation device. It, it allows this distributed computation of chasing opportunities within a large field of opportunities. And so if you can create this large field of opportunities, then you create a market, the market will successfully go and chase those opportunities. But the individual market actors are somewhat limited in their ability to chase those opportunities. But you get these firms and governments that get so big that they actually are in this position. They're no longer acting within the market, they're acting above the market. They're able to profit from the productivity of the market overall, and thus they see an interest in sponsoring it. Now, this is very closely related to the problem of technology, which is when you're acting within the market as one of these small agents, you actually don't really have an interest in technology development because it doesn't give you an edge on anyone else because you're not big enough to really make use of the new technology in a relative way against your competitors. And if some new technology comes about, whether you invent it or someone else invents it, basically it, it rapidly gets adopted by everybody and you, you're not any further forward. Yeah. You, you might even not even make enough money to make the investment worthwhile, right? Right. Small yeah, you might not have enough have capital. Low profit margins. They fail at extremely high rates, yeah, which is so, one of the reasons they get easily outcompeted by a lot of large competitors. Right, right. You have this situation where basically you need scale to actually benefit from technology. In, in, a, in a relative sense or in an absolute sense. And so that's why it tends to be large companies, these big monopolies like Bell Labs and so on, and the government that tends to actually invest in technology because they're the only ones with the scale to actually profit from it. I, I know that this is very similar between technology and markets, right? In the sense that te- technology is a sort of public good. It's this piece of infrastructure that you have to have scale to actually profit from. And likewise, a market is this piece of public infrastructure that you have to have scale to actually profit from. Well, but, I, I just know it, it can also be hard to figure out ways to profit from either one of those things. Yeah, you just don't know. When you're first doing the research into something, like you just don't know where it's going to be valuable or how it's going to be valuable. And that's one of the reasons you need the scale, right? Right. Is you actually, if you're a very focused business and you do some blue sky technology development, you have no idea whether that's going to actually be useful to what you're doing. It may not be useful to what you're doing at all. It may be useful to the other guy. Whereas if you're a very large business with many interests, you know, mm-hmm. you know, your Musk heavy inter- heavy industries in 20 years when he's sort of consolidated it all, it's all much bigger. You know, Musk heavy industries is interested in actual blue sky technology development because there are many different branches of the company that can use it. Or obviously the government case is obvious, right? If there's a new technology, this this entity knows how to deal with it know, and, and develops it, knows how to use it. Has the, has the capital and the expertise, then wherever that ends up fitting in the economy, it's it's benefiting the whole thing. Yeah. No, notice it's often easier to figure out profitability when you're building the platform of exchange than it is to figure it out if you're creating some kind of new material technology. Right. Because when you're creating the technology, you're in a sense competing in the market. Even a large company, even one with a lot of state support like SpaceX has, is competing in a market. And so they're going to start running into these disparities of information, anything a normal startup or entrepreneur faces in a market, which is why creating marketplaces or creating an exchange platform is going to get you lots of great user data that you can now monetize in future. And it's also going to let you profit off of exchanges like taking fees from Uber drivers. But it is not solving the problem necessarily of the actual material advancement question. And so one of the things we have to figure out here is how to make it profitable if if profit is the mode of accumulation that we are choosing to privilege, how to make it profitable to take those kinds of heavy risks, most of which fail. Well, I, I mean, here's, here's my claim is if we look at what capitalism is good at, by capitalism, I just mean this sort of idea of investors running around, you know, allocating capital to essentially private. And by private is sort of one of these funny words, but basically capturable returns. They're making investments in capturable returns. Ca- capitalism is very good. A, a capitalist market is very good at solving that problem, which is there is a bunch of technology within a technological paradigm 
there are a bunch of opportunities to pursue. And the problem, there is this big problem of how do we balance and allocate where are we going to put the capital to produce deniable goods? And by deniable, I mean that it's controllable whether or not someone gets the good. It's not necessarily a good thing that the good is deniable or whatever, but it's it's just that's the property right. that, creating, that's the property of the thing that is actually good at doing is that the good is deniable. You're not creating which, a public good. You're not creating a commons. Yeah, you're not creating a public good or a commons. It's deniable. So capitalism is very good at allocating capital, which is to say actual hard stuff like machinery, tools, resources, etc., towards the production of deniable goods. And to the extent that that is one of the major problems you're facing in your economy, which it often is, is very useful to be running a market, a capitalist market of that style. It's just the key thing to understand is that not everything can be made into a deniable good. Not everything is a deniable good. And, you know, most forms of machinery, consumables, etc., are deniable goods. Great. Most forms of information, most forms of technology, public infrastructure, those things are not as usefully modeled as deniable goods because you actually don't want to be denying them from people. Yeah. And so we've built up some of these legal structures like patents and in some cases, privately controlled infrastructure with tolls and so on, where we're trying to kind of shoehorn something into this model of being a deniable good in order to bring back bring that profit motive to bear on it, bring the capitalist profit motive to bear on it. But I think in practice, even with those mechanisms, it doesn't really tend to work. And you also get these situations where I'm reminded of the situation in, I think, medieval Germany, where on some key river of commerce, there were many different princes who each extracted a toll mm. payment as you go up the river, such that it becomes, you know, it's all based on private property. Somehow they've turned this public infrastructure into a deniable private good. But the actual result is not that it gets used adequately, but that because each of the different princes want to extract their fair share, the, the thing becomes totally choked off. Well, and that's, and so that's why that's we invented with- uh, eminent domain, right? Because <laughs> it's one of the funny things you come across in the history of property in the Americas that America in particular has this myth of Lockean values, including Lockean ideas about property being the way that the place was settled. And that was kind of true in the homesteader era, but it very quickly got to the point where this started becoming a problem because if you're, say, trying to build a train track right. and every landowner along the way figures out how much they can extract from you, especially when you're like the last holdout and the people have already made the investment, yeah, you then you're, you're able to take, yeah, you're, you're able to damage a lot of these initiatives. Yeah. Well, I remember one thing they did, I think, with one of the railways in Canada where it was expected that the railway was going to go out through one pass in the mountains into one inlet. And you get all these speculators buying up all the land there so that they can sell it back to the government at a higher rate, uh, or rather back to the, the contractor who's building the railway. But then to, to circumvent that, the contractor building the railway secretly planned it to a different route. And just just completely bypassed all the speculators, so they all completely lost their investment. Nice, Smart. <laughs> which is pretty funny. Anyways, I I think a model that I'm coming to be able to articulate here is that you have a proper domain of capitalism. You have this this thing of the market, this thing of private capital allocation, or you know, private again is this funny word, but basically uh, you have this idea of capital allocation, and we have this system for doing that, which we call capitalism, it's very good at solving a particular problem within the economy. It just happens that that's like 50 or 60% of the actual economic problem, not 100%. And there's this other aspect. I mean, it's not necessarily all that useful to to say it's like this percentage or that percentage because they're mutually necessary things. The other half is this public goods development, which actually does include technology and information, scientific knowledge, public infrastructure, commons like markets, laws, etc. And those things actually can't be handled by the market. 
And so you need you need essentially sufficiently large entities that are in a position to profit from those things in a proper way. They, they have sufficient scale to actually profit from those things. But what I mean by a proper way is not like the princess on the river, where they're each extracting a little tax that actually chokes up the whole thing, but rather big enough to kind of contain the whole thing within their order and profit from the effect it has on everything else. And so that's like Amazon with, it creates this market on Amazon. It doesn't take all the profits, you know, the, the sellers get a lot of the profits, but it gets the profit from the existence of this market because it's all going through Amazon. Notably, it also gets consumer data, which it can then use to market its own lines of goods. <laughs> right, right. So this is the real magic of Amazon's system. Right, right. Yeah, this is how Amazon can kind of like, yeah, maintains leverage on its on its sellers. But, you know, states actually just have that same kind of logic. I, mm-hmm. it, it's not like there's an actual hard difference between large companies and states in this in this economic sense. It's just that they both have sufficient scale that they start to be able to benefit from developing these public goods. And companies often not actually big enough to do that. Even the big ones, they they are often still too caught up in the market logic to actually be able to do that. But you see some of the big companies approaching it. And that's why I say that there is this spectrum. I want to just flag why this is important, because I I know uh, a lot of people who listen to this probably have studied economics or at least had some hobbies interest in it and are being like, oh, isn't this is just the, the commons and public goods problem. This is like super basic stuff. You're right. In the economic theory, it's super basic stuff. But this is a podcast about political economy. And so I think the reason this is important is because it lets us ask the question as to why America currently has the kinds of settlement that it does when it comes to class relations and the forms of innovation that we're able to do. And it's I would frame it like this. Over the last 40 years, in what we can roughly call the neoliberal era, if we like, America has gotten very good at accessing new markets for consumption and for existing production, right? Finding new markets for labor and so on. It has also been quite good in, or to be more specific, its tech sector has been extremely good at coming up with making logistics legible and creating new technologies and platforms based on that. Those are two things America's been able to do very well. Here's the problem. Neither of those things naturally or necessarily lend themselves to opening the new frontiers that we discussed earlier. And so the thing that China is currently doing is learning how to do that. It has created legal and political systems which really actively create new markets in which innovation can occur that the country did not previously have the capability to do. And at this point, enough that it's doing new innovation entirely, right? Beyond what the American companies that offshore there were doing to begin with. And so the political problem we have to resolve is how can American institutions become good at creating those kinds of goods again? Yeah, well, I mean, about the sort of like academic economics already having all this stuff in it. I, I think I, you know, obviously, yeah, the academic economics has all this stuff. They they know about these public goods problems and so on. Like we're going to be able to use all these problems or all these terms like uh, tragedy of the commons and so on to describe these things or, or technology as a public good. The idea of a public good obviously comes from the economics theory. So it's not like, oh, yeah, they haven't been doing their job. But the issue is that there has been a disconnect between those ideas theoretically existing somewhere in the back room and actual political and ideological practice. Actual political and ideological practice has very much not involved a lot of or actual investment in development, not since the 70s, right? And instead, we've had a lot of ideological championing of the free market as such and the free market as an alternative to, to these things. So that that's, again, we're, we're trying to get closer to this problem of you know, what kind of economy do we want to build and who are the actors that are going to be building it and how are they going to be coordinated and so on. Obviously, part of that is ideology. So it is actually important to talk about this stuff, even if it's like, oh, yeah, the academics already know this. Well, the academics haven't actually solved the problem yet, which is actually getting the politics to 
to allocate resources to it. Right. Because in all, all these cases, right, China, America, Singapore, wherever, as we've covered repeatedly, these settlements are generally not reached because someone comes up with a really great model of distribution. It comes up <coughs> because someone is able to create an effective settlement that coordinates the commanding heights, if we want, of yeah. the society. Yeah. I mean, one way to say it is, is someone creates a coalition that is able to embody the perspective of the state. Yeah. And specifically a developmentalist state. And so this is what you see, you know, in Singapore, someone creates this coalition, Lee Kuan Yew creates this coalition where they actually see it in their interest. The interest of that of that coalition is to develop. Right. And then they go and do that in China. The Communist Party, they have put themselves into this position of sovereignty and with enough power that they are able to embody to usefully and profitably embody the perspective of the state. And it's not like communism or or whatever that is necessarily the thing that is making China work. It's that they have a ruling coalition that embodies the perspective of the state. And in America, we've we haven't really had that for a while. And so that's 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 really sort of how this how this cashes out, right? It's like you need to produce a coalition that can embody this holistic perspective. And it, that means it has to be able, it has to be gunning for enough power, a large enough scope of power that it's one of those entities that's large enough to profit from development. Right. And the right kinds of development. Right. The right kinds of development. So, so this is, again, we're talking a little bit about the, the political aspect here, but to get back to it, like what kind of development do we want? I still don't feel like we've answered that well, question. Well, so I think this is probably a good time to bring up the question of classes. So Nico's piece had one proposal. We have, you know, a number of concerns going into these things. There are people who have moral commitments to a certain kind of class structure. For example, maybe you could take the moral principle that uh, in a good, virtuous society, most people are their own proprietors and own their own capital. And so you have a moral commitment to having a society of artisans and proprietors and small businesses. And this circumvents any concern about what kinds of wealth are produced in that society. I don't think we are going to do that because that, again, we're actually interested in what kind of wealth is produced. So we are now bringing another variable into this equation. There is the question of kinds of wealth. And we've talked a little bit about the role of use value, the new frontiers idea. Now I think we can bring in the role of what sorts of classes are most amenable to the kinds of governance that we've hinted at, touched on in the first part. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.